0: The History of the World Podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler Volume 3 The Classical World Episode 60 A Profile of Emperor Ashoka the Great deal of mystery surrounds this legendary Indian monarch, whose historicity has been questioned and whose infamy has been re-evaluated. The best thing that we can do is tell the various stories relating to this man and invite you to decide what you think is the truth and what you think is not. In the last episode of the podcast, we introduced the Mauryan Empire initiated by the first emperor called Chandragupta Maurya, who overthrew the monarch of the Magadha kingdom and used this kingdom as a power base for the creation of his new empire. It may have been the case that it was the highly respected philosopher called Chanakya who coerced Chandragupta into travelling into the Magadha kingdom with him. In order to climb the political ladder there, and overthrow the Nanda dynasty rulers. Chandragupta Maurya is the grandfather of our protagonist, Ashoka the Great, and the literary work of Chanakya would be important to future generations, including Ashoka. Chandragupta was the first emperor of the Mauryan Empire, and he would abdicate his throne to his son, Bindusara. Not much information exists about the reign of Bindusara although it is claimed that he was a strong emperor consolidating and expanding on the work of his father to spread the influence of the Mauryans across the subcontinent. By the time Bindusara died whoever would take over would be taking over the most dominant empire that had ruled over these lands. Ashoka is listed as the third Mauryan Emperor but his accession to rule is suspected to have been far from straightforward. He would have been born into a predominantly Brahmanist empire which is a religion that morphed into what we consider today as Hinduism. Other religious sects are very likely to have existed within the empire though. Brahmanism finds its roots in the Vedic scriptures As does Jainism and Buddhism, but Brahmanism also incorporated particular non-Vedic ideas that made it distinct. Brahmanism would have recognised a caste system so that every living person could be identified as very definitely belonging to a particular class of society. The story of Ashoka has become his traditional story due to a lack of substantial evidence and writings of his background and life being written retrospectively. But that is also not unusual for figures of the ancient world. Much of our knowledge of the cultures of Europe and the Near East from the early first millennium come from the writings of Herodotus and others, while any stories of Greek late Bronze Age are told to us by Homer, and whether he was actually a real person or not is even questioned. So Ashoka's hazy and questionable life story is certainly not a unique thing but it is a lesson to casual historians in the etiquette of being a historian and respecting historicity. It's also a lesson in not overvaluing your own opinion and showing humility when listening to the opinions of others regardless of how well educated on the chosen subject they may or may not appear to be. Ashoka's story was an absolute mystery to the modern world until its decipherment and discovery in the 19th century. And the sources are read with caution as we attempt to work out whether there is an ulterior motive to Ashoka's portrayal. We'll come back to these things at the end of the episode. However, we don't have many sources for Ashoka's early life and we might almost have to trust the scriptures of later scribes who may have wanted to show Ashoka in a particular light. So we have to be very careful indeed. Ashoka is reported to have been unpopular with his father, the Emperor Bindusara. Ashoka is very likely to have not been the eldest son or the Crown Prince of the Maurya Empire. An alternative son would have been prepared to take over the throne of the empire, not Ashoka. Ashoka is actually said to have been one of 100 sons of Bindasara. Other texts say that he was one of several sons. I think that he was one of several sons, But this is another lesson to those of us who have the sheer nerve to think that they can make a history podcast despite not being a qualified academic, schooled in the correct manner in which to write and study about history. Even though I don't believe that he had to scratch and claw his way through a hundred siblings to grab the imperial throne, I have a duty of care to anyone who cares to listen to me to play devil's advocate in order to give a well-rounded and respectable overview of the period that I want to tell the story of. So if Bindusara took a number of wives or concubines and tried to procreate as much as possible with them, then it is entirely conceivable that Ashoka was one of dozens of half-brothers all sired by Bindusara. And all of them may have had a valid claim to the throne, under whatever expectations were held by the senior statesmen of the empire. So even though I believe that Ashoka may have had two or three sibling rivals to the throne, that doesn't mean that I have any right to dismiss the other possibility, especially when it exists in a historical scripture. John Key is an academic British historian who specializes on the popular history of India. In his History of India he tells the story of Ashoka being sent to deal with a revolt in Taxila. This appointment is mentioned in accounts that also state that Bindusara gave him no weapons with which to deal with the revolt. Perhaps in an attempt to demonstrate Bindusara's contempt for his son. It makes little sense to view this in this context in my humble opinion. If the local rulers at Taxila were showing signs of a military revolt, Bindusara would barely prioritise acting in a disdainful manner towards his son at the expense of losing territory, especially if we are to believe that he was successful in obtaining lands for the empire during his reign. If Bindusara did send Ashoka to Taxila without weapons, it would surely have been on a diplomatic mission. Why take a number of weapons to a diplomatic mission when they could be used to good effect against lands not yet conquered? This is my personal feeling, but you may choose to believe that Bindasara did send Ashoka into a hazardous situation because he didn't like him and he didn't care much for his ultimate fate. We should always remember that no matter how much we feel or believe that our opinion is the logical truth, that somebody could teach us how to look at something from a different angle because of how they have interpreted the same information. And when you bear this in mind, you will become an interesting person to debate history with. The success of the Mauryans could have been thanks to the legacy of the great Indian philosopher Chanakya. Chanakya was the political advisor and mentor to Chandragupta Maurya. Chanakya is famed for his writing of the treatise on affairs of state which itself is called the Arthashastra. The Arthashastra was considered as the best thing that any important Indian statesman could read if they wanted to be a successful emperor. When Chandragupta abdicated in favour of his son Bindusara Chanakya was still on the scene. So we can feel somewhat confident that the Arthashastra was a source of study for Bindusara and his sons including Ashoka. The undercurrent of Chanakya's wisdom could have been a vital part of the successful growth and maintenance of the Maurya Empire during its earlier years. Ashoka appears to have successfully dealt with the rebellion in Taxila that his father, the Emperor, sent him to deal with without any weapons. Whether deities provided Ashoka with weapons, or whether he was able to succeed with more diplomatic methods, he was seemingly rewarded with a new gig. He would be sent to the city of Ujjain, in the modern Indian state of Madhya Pradesh, to be part of the governorship. This must have been an important appointment. What happened while he was there will open up a completely different historical dimension on the biography of Ashoka. We believe that it was during his time as the Viceroy of Ujjain that he met a lady called Maharani Devi. She was a merchant's daughter so a significantly lower class to the royal prince Ashoka but it seems that he did fall for her and although there are conflicting texts to tell us whether they were married to each other or not, it does appear that they had a son and a daughter together at least. These two children would be significant missionaries for Buddhism, according to Sri Lankan scriptures. There are different scores of thought for how this Buddhist method of religion came to be so prominent in this little family of Ashoka. Some say that it was Devi who was the Buddhist, and although Ashoka was not too concerned with Buddhism initially, he embraced it later. However, there are also reports of Ashoka's own mother being an observer of a Shramana movement. In brief, the Mauryan Empire was a Brahmanic empire. Brahmanism was a branch of the Vedic religions that was part of the journey towards modern Hinduism the Shramana movements were more attuned with the non-violent non-orthodox Vedic religions of which Buddhism was one so some suspect that Ashoka may have had Buddhist tendencies from a very early age and that Ashoka was the one to influence Devi and their two children if Ashoka did actually marry Devi then she could have been the first of a handful of wives that Ashoka had during his lifetime. While Ashoka was still in Ujjain, another uprising occurred in Taxila. This time, Bindusara would send Tsushima, his eldest son and heir, to deal with the rebellion. Tsushima was Ashoka's half-brother. It was while Sushima was in Taxila that the Emperor Bindusara fell ill and died. However, rather than Sushima heading back to Pataliputra to take the throne, the ministers who served the emperor sent for Ashoka instead. Ashoka abandoned his duty and his family in Ujjain and went to Pataliputra. Whether the ministers favoured Ashoka or whether it was more of a case of Tsushima being out of their favour is open to speculation. But there is a story of Tsushima smacking one of the ministers on their bald head and that minister rallying up an anti-Tsushima faction on the strength of it. Ascension We mentioned earlier that Ashoka had a hundred brothers and they all had a claim to the Mauryan throne. Ashoka overcame all of them and became the emperor. The problem with this is that it seems unlikely. More like the stuff of great legend than a natural sequence of events. We certainly know about Tsushima in Taxila, who was seemingly ignored by ministers when it appeared that he had been groomed to be his father's successor. Another text tells us of another brother called Vitashoka, who became a Buddhist monk with no interest in the throne. So we have to make our own minds up about what we believe happened during the apparent four year gap between Bindisara's death and Ashoka's recognition as the new emperor. Analysis of events and timescales points historians towards a date of around 268 BCE as the official date of Ashoka's ascension. There can be little doubt that Ashoka had to fight for the throne as all references point towards that to a greater or lesser degree. Sushima is likely to have returned from Taxila to claim his rightful throne but he was obviously unsuccessful with his ultimate fate being reported as him being thrown into a burning charcoal pit. Very little is known about the earliest years of Ashoka's reign but it would be likely that it was dominated by putting down rebellions and consolidating the gains of the Maurya Empire as a whole and potentially fending off any remaining challenges to the throne. Although there is little firm evidence of this. The major story of Ashoka's reign would involve the lands of the Kalinga, something we spoke about in the last episode. Kalinga Accounts of Ashoka's early reign portray him as a cruel and heartless king with a penchant for personally torturing captured enemies. This appears to be regardless of being touched by any notion of a non-violent way of life as mentioned previously. So this would certainly bring into question whether Ashoka could have had any Buddhist influence on his first wife Devi before this time, if indeed it was him to influence her. There are multiple accounts from different sources describing how Ashoka instigated massacres but not Just against enemies. Ministers, countrymen, and concubines could all be slaughtered if they did not adhere to the will of the emperor. The account of Ashoka in his early years is a very un Buddhist account. Ashoka turned his attention to the Kalinga region of the Indian subcontinent, certainly within the first decade of the reign. Kalinga was a rich and vibrant area of the subcontinent, full of trade across the seas of the Bay of Bengal. It was a prize to be won and a valuable addition to the already successful empire of the Mauryans. We don't have any details relating to exactly what happened when Ashoka invaded Kalinga, but accounts portray the conflict as like nothing ever described in The subcontinent. The scriptures from these ancient times tell us that 100,000 were killed during this war. They also tell us that 150,000 Kalingans were deported. The legend of Ashoka encourages us to believe that his life changing moment was when he was surveying the battlefield after a victory against the Kalingans. He was horrified by the bloodshed and it was said to have had a profound effect on him. This image is brought to life in a resonant manner in the Santosh Sivan's 2001 film Ashoka. Edict 13, inscribed on a rock during the later life of Ashoka, tells us
1: the following. Ashoka conquered the Kalingas eight years after his coronation. One hundred and fifty thousand were deported, one hundred thousand were killed, and many more died. After the Kalingas had been conquered, Ashoka came to feel a strong inclination towards the Dharma, a love for the Dharma and For instruction in Dharma. Now Ashoka feels deep remorse for having conquered the Kalingas. Now it is conquest by Dharma that Ashoka considers to be the best conquest. I have had this Dharma edict written so that my sons and great grandsons may not consider making new conquests or that if military conquests are made, that they be done with forbearance and light punishment, or better still that they consider making conquest by dharma only, for that bears fruit in this world and the next. May all their intense devotion be given to this which has a result in this world and the next. Dharma The word
0: Dharma is a fundamental aspect of Buddhism which was originally taught by the Buddha himself, Gautama Buddha, who is believed to have lived around 200 years before Ashoka. Dharma, in short, tells the followers of Buddha to accept their physical mortality in order to find inner peace and happiness, but intellectuals debate what Ashoka meant when he was using the word Dharma. Dharma is directly linked to the Hindu code of Dharma, which originates from ancient Vedic religions. It encourages a morally correct way of living. In Ashoka's writings, it was an instruction to his subjects. In an otherwise Brahmanic empire, Ashoka would be promoting a style of kingship That would differ from the traditional and successful type laid out by his grandfather's chief advisor, Chanakya, in his Arthashastra. Ashoka took to promoting Buddhist methods in a big way. He would lay out his plans to rule in a non violent way. All life would be considered as having value, animals would not be permitted to be sacrificed and Ashoka himself would commit to vegetarianism. Ashoka clearly viewed himself as a ruler who had a duty to promote the message of peace throughout his lands and also beyond them. It would be impossible for Ashoka to travel all around his vast empire to promote his dharma. You can only expect ruling the empire in a non-violent way would have put pressure on Ashoka's effectiveness to rule the empire and probably required him to be sharper than ever. So a number of inscriptions were sent to all areas of the Mauryan Empire telling the story of Ashoka's life and rule and his vision of the future and how his subjects were to play their part in it. In the far reaches of the Empire the inscriptions would be made on rocks but the most impressive ones were made on large pillars stretching as far as 50 feet into the sky. The pillars could often be topped by an animal such as an elephant or a bull but the most important choice was the lion and in some cases there would be four outward-facing lions on top. The lion is supposed to be an animal representative of Gautama Buddha. The inscriptions would be predominantly written in the Brahmi script which was typical of the region at the time. Not that particularly much of the population would have been literate. They would have surely relied on local priests to interpret the script and if it was a Brahmanic priest or a local chief then he may not have necessarily agreed with Ashoka's outlook. Certainly after Ashoka's lifetime the Maurya Empire declined very quickly so it seems that Ashoka's new attitude and instructions to the population had very little impact on the success of the Maurya Empire. And indeed it might have had the opposite effect due to the lack of military aggressions which tended to be why ancient empires became powerful and maintained their power. As we mentioned, Ashoka didn't restrict his ambition to re-educate to Mauryan territory though as we find edicts written in Greek and Aramaic in the Mauryan territory west of the Indus River. Another of Ashoka's construction projects was of stupas throughout the empire. A stupa is a tumulus or a mound and in the case of Ashoka's stupas they were created to house the redistributed remains of Gautama Buddha. The most impressive and iconic of these stupas is the one at Sanchi. The architraves at the gateways into the stupa are decorated with skillfully sculpted reliefs illustrating the life of the Buddha rediscovery ashoka actually disappeared into obscurity after his death mainly due to the fact that brahmanism prevailed as the main religion in indian lands and ashoka didn't really represent that way of life india moved on after ashoka and the maurya empire and future kingdoms and empires didn't feel any association to ashoka and so he became largely forgotten about during the 19th century, the Indian subcontinent was mainly under the rule of the British East India Company, which was initially set up as a cooperative trade network of Asian lands and eventually took control of large areas of India, creating a strong link between India and Britain. As such, it made it possible for British scholars to visit the lands of India and learn more about the wonderful subcontinent. One scholar in particular was a man called James Princep. James's father was closely linked to India having been a British merchant before James was born and as such his influence was high enough that his sons would have an opportunity to pursue an education and career in India. James himself would become an assay master, someone who essentially assesses the quality of metals for purity. Princep had a considerable mind and a thirst for knowledge. Not only did he excel in his particular field of metallurgy which brought him into contact with ancient Indian coinage but he also took a strong interest in translating the ancient Indian Brahmi script which enabled him to decipher writings on these mysterious ancient pillars, stones and stupas that told the story of a king called Devanampriya This king did not appear in the known Indian king lists so it was suspected that he could be a Sri Lankan king. But Sri Lankan texts enabled Princep to work out that this was the same king that was referred to in the Indian king lists as Ashoka. So the strong link between Ashoka and Sri Lanka was now being revealed due to the successful translation and association of the texts and this is where we can actually see how fundamental the legacy of Ashoka actually is. A king who was otherwise a forgotten part of Indian history. Now his spiritual journey from cruel tyrant to peaceful ruler could be put into context. Now we mentioned earlier on in the episode that before Ashoka became the emperor of Maurya, that he had met and married a woman called Devi while he was the governor of Ujjain. We also mentioned that Devi gave Ashoka at least two children the most notable being a son called Mahinda and a daughter called Sangamita. At some point these two children of Ashoka and Devi travelled to the island of Sri Lanka in order to spread the word of the Buddha as Buddhist missionaries. With the eventual blessing of her father Ashoka and the encouragement of her brother Mahinda, Sangamita would ordain Sri Lankan women to a priestly level while Mahinda would continue to spread the word of the Buddha to as many as possible. It is due to the success of their work that the Buddhist scriptures exist in Sri Lanka that can help us to understand more about the life of Ashoka. The fact that they are Buddhist scriptures must also serve as a bit of a warning to us. In order to promote and demonstrate the power and righteousness of Buddhism it would be very tempting to sensationalise the moral journey of Ashoka. And this is something that we have to develop an awareness of as historians. We are only ever reading the writing of another. As a historian myself, I am very aware that there is a distinct possibility that I may read a text and misinterpret this text and more dangerously broadcast an incorrect opinion because of it. However, that could be as much the fault of the writer of the original text as much as it could be the fault of the writer of today. If I wanted to use Ashoka's spiritual journey to promote the glorious power and truth of Buddhism, would it not make perfect sense to portray Ashoka as one of the least peaceful human beings to demonstrate that it didn't matter how bloodthirsty you are, you can still be saved by the peacefulness of Buddhism. So did Ashoka kill a hundred brothers to become the emperor and did he kill a hundred thousand Kalingans to annex their land? I doubt it very much but I do know that I don't know and I do know that it makes a compelling story and I do know that it is worth sharing even if it is advisable to stay objective when listening to it. What we can be somewhat confident about is that the era of the reign of Ashoka seems to demonstrate the first major proliferation of Buddhism from its heartlands in and around the lands of the Ganges River, and so Ashoka is held in very high regard because of this. A really enjoyable episode and a fascinating character, Ashoka. And uh, if you do ever get the chance to watch the, uh, the film um, Ashoka, uh, made in 2001, uh, it's recorded in Hindi, but you can get it with English subtitles. Um, highly recommend it. It's, um, it's a real uh, powerful film. Right, let's jump straight into listener messages this week then. Nina Ellis wrote in and and said, Hello, my partner and I are driving through Pakistan to Harappa and very much enjoying your podcast. It's really difficult to find good podcasts about Pakistan and this area and we really appreciate yours. Keep up the amazing work. Can't wait to listen to more. All the best, Nina. Well you might be pleased to hear that we're we're focusing on the Kushans next week, so um, that might be uh, of interest to you if you uh, if you're interested in the history of that area. So um, Casey Graham has put um, from Texas Great podcast. Thank you for your time and effort. Just recently discovered your podcast and have been binge listening over these last few weeks to get caught up. I can't wait to hear about my favourite historical topic, the Romans. Um, Well, that's good because a lot of people are getting fed up with the Romans. So it's nice to hear that someone's looking forward to it. Good stuff. Uh, Marilyn Fuentes uh, put uh, Hey Chris, my name is Marilyn I start, I recently started listening to your podcast And wow, what a beautiful piece of work you have Thank you for sharing it with the world Anyhow, I'm listening to Volume 1, Episode 11 And had a question about what you meant by non-African humans When referring to humans that bred with Neanderthals I am a little confused because my understanding from listening to the podcast is that humans moved out of Africa and spread to the other regions, so wouldn't they still be African? Or are you referring to humans that evolved from hominins in areas of the world that left Africa before humans? I think I may have just answered my own question, but if you do get to reading this, thank you kindly, Marilyn. I think possibly um, we have to... The, the migrations out of Africa to start with um, are twofold. Firstly, we consider the hominin migrations out of Africa. So we, uh, the, the Homo genus evolved in Africa, we believe, and um, various uh, species of Homo um, migrated out of Africa maybe sort of as long ago as two million years ago. Um, and these were the ones that dispersed around the world and, and evolved into new species. So uh, we believe that it may have been a, an ancestor or, or, or something similar to Homo erectus that left Africa, and, and, um, and that's where we, we get the uh, emergence of Homo Neanderthal, uh, neanderthalensis, um, the Denisovans, Homo uh, luzonensis, um, Homo floresiensis, all of these species that Homo sapiens we believe that they may have come across in their travels and of course that that gives us that second migration, it's exclusive to Homo sapiens so we believe that maybe around um, 200, 250, 300,000 years ago that Homo sapiens had sort of somewhat evolved into the animal that we recognise today as us. And so uh, then there was a second wave of migration out of Africa, this time specifically to Homo sapiens. And um, it may have been that that group of Homo sapiens contained the ancestor of all non-African humans Today, and so when we talk about non-African humans, we talk about perhaps the all the human population of the world outside of Africa. We believe that evolved from this one group, and this group um, may have encountered uh, Neanderthals in the region of the Levant uh, if they migrated out of Africa around about seventy thousand years ago, perhaps. And this is why there are traces of Neanderthal DNA on all animals, uh, Homo sapiens, animals outside of Africa. So that's what we mean by that. So this is why uh, most African populations don't have the Neanderthal DNA is because because the, their ancestors never encountered Neanderthals. I hope that answers your question, though. It's a little bit complicated, all that kind of thing, isn't it? It uh, can be a little bit tricky to get your head around, uh, but... Um, you know, if, if you if you study, you, you'll soon catch hold of it, I'm sure. Uh, Doug Kaywood wrote in and said, I've just started listening to the podcast during this pandemic. I'm still in season one, just finished episode 16. I love the level of detail you provide a lot, but not too much. I'm in my 50s, but like you, after I was 30, I thought it would be awesome to take a history class that basically does what your podcast seems to be doing. Thank you. I also thought that I would share an idea that is that not too presumptuous of me. I grew up in the church but would not call myself heavily religious. As a result, I've always thought, why can't evolution and religion actually be uh, actually both be right to some degree? I figured that I'm not knowledgeable enough to make a judgment on what is or isn't right or possible. And it seems to me that while I very much believe in science, there is a fair amount of theory that gets included and seems to be... Uh, seems to end up becoming fact so at some point i think it would be very interesting for you to do a couple of podcasts that takes important moments in time in key global religions and take a stab at aligning some of the evolutionary information you, that you have shared and see if some of those things may support each other a couple of examples might be the fertile crescent could this have been eden Humans' brains rapidly growing after be- after beginning to eat meat. Could meat be the apple? And Childbirth being painful for humans due to smaller than optimal pelvis versus the previous hominins. This may seem either very intriguing to you or crazy. Rest assured, I'm not a religious zealot, but thought that it might be interesting for you to take a stab at something like this maybe along with some religious scholars and make it known that this was just an interesting thought experiment okay like i said i mainly wanted to let you know that i'm enjoying the podcast and it looks like from what i can find on the web that there are many thousands of others that are way ahead of me and love it as well take care uh thanks doug it's a very kind kind message And um, yeah, maybe there's scope in the future for us to explore the relationship between um, scientific history and religious history. Uh, There is no doubt in my mind that there is an absolute connection between the two. I think when we read religious scriptures, I think sometimes, um, you know, there's this stigma about reading the Bible and saying, how dare you? Uh, claim that that's a historical reference well of course it's a historical reference it was written historically and um, even if you are not in any way religious then you can't deny the fact that it's only as mythological as any other text from that period so um, you know I suppose if if I could be so bold as to, to state it get over yourself and read the Bible for the for the script of what it is, and make your own mind up about the content. Because there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of it relates to true events. Um, I'm not a fundamentalist, so I don't, you know, necessarily. I find it hard to believe that God created Earth on day day one and day and night and all that exactly as the Book of Genesis describes it. But certainly, when you get into events such as the um, Jewish exile uh, from Jerusalem uh, by the Babylonians, um, that kind of thing. Um, you know there are other historical texts that support that as as actually happening. So uh, dismiss the Bible and um, you know you might lose out lose a big uh, reference book um, about our history that can give us clues. So um, I'm not really on board with the people that say that personally. Rob Warner, a long time fan of the podcast, often writes in, He's, he's written an interesting email there and put, hello again Chris, your fascinating podcast on the Huns versus the late Romans has sparked off another question to pester you with, the Huns, the Mongols, the Scythians, the English with Henry V, all these arrow based armies, how much trouble did they have maintaining their arrow supply? I have some books on ancestral skills like making fire and such and they cover making arrows, it sounds like a lot of work to me and my blind guess is that 10 minutes of shooting would empty your quiver and cost you a day or more of concentrated arrow making assuming that you have the straight sticks etc to make them out of have you any idea what proportion of shot arrows were reusable I assume that if the arrow missed and nobody trod on it it would be okay. maybe half of the ones that were pulled out of people might survive Did the Mounted Archer keep getting off to collect fallen arrows? Did they keep going back to the arrow wagon for a refill? That's as far as my guesswork takes me. But when it comes to what proportion of arrows missed, um, whether Armies had carts full of arrows, how much chance of an arrow Uh, had of not getting trodden on my mind goes blank have you seen any references to armies staying in one place for ages and to make more arrows the huns etc are always described as very mobile sleeping on horseback was mentioned but a cart full of arrows would have really slowed them down maybe every warrior had a second horse loaded up with supplies following the one he was riding but wouldn't that get in the way in a battle anyway any ideas would be welcome These things bug me until I've found an answer I can believe in. Thanks, Rob. Um, Interesting discussion, Rob. Um, For me, you know, I I believe that arrows would have been uh, only a small part of battle strategy. So you deploy your archers um, when the moment is right. They're not just firing arrows all day long. Most of the battle would be taking place between the cavalry and between the infantry. That would be the main. Uh, part of the battle and the, and the archers would be a supplementary thing to uh, maybe gain an advantage or a foothold in the battle. And so um, archers would have been um, used sparingly and the arrows would have undoubtedly have been manufactured well in advance of the uh, battle and um, certainly en masse. So I don't think uh, numerical production would have been a big problem as long as they devoted enough time and people to the project and uh, undoubtedly if an archer ran out of arrows um, i'm sure he would just turn around um, on his horse in the case of the steppe cultures um, he'd just turn around on his horse and go back to base camp and get a fresh supply of arrows ready for the next wave of attacks um that's my point of view i might be totally wrong because i'm no expert on on this kind of thing anyway medieval sort of uh intricacies of battle uh battle plans and strategies i'm not really uh i'm not really well read on that so but interesting like if anyone like if anyone has any opinion about any of the stuff that we've talked about today in the aftermath of the ashoka episode um, then please do write in. We're interested. If you know more than I do, I'm very, very interested. So please do write in. I've, um, I've been inundated with interesting emails this week. Here's another one. Chris, I've been listening to the podcast and I've gotten through volume two. I really enjoy it. You present things very well with, without the prideful ego that many scientists seem to do, thinking their conclusions are infallible. I also appreciate how you are willing to reference the Bible as a legitimate historical text. It makes me frustrated when scientists outright dismiss it. Okay, so on to my suggestion and maybe you've already done one about this and I just haven't gotten to it yet. Have you done an episode on how artefacts and evidence is dated? Such as how do they say a finger bone is 100,000 years old or that a piece of pottery is from a certain period. Thank you. For your efforts on the podcast daniel drake united states um i haven't done a podcast on dating um it could be an interesting subject but it's certainly a very um it's certainly a very intense subject we've um talked about many ways of dating artifacts um uh We've talked about uh, radi- radiometric dating. We've talked about um, paleomagnetic dating. Um, we've, we've talked about um, uh, you know str- uh, layers, the, the sedimentary layers the stratification of, of the layers of the earth and how you can date using that. Um, associated pottery um there's a lot of ways that um dates are required for information so maybe it would be an interesting podcast episode but i'd certainly need to brush up on my own knowledge before i tackled that one but uh interesting email and great suggestion daniel thank you very much a couple of reviews um, firstly, we've got uh, Scotty Baby 929 from the United States of America But Gets Better. I reviewed this podcast a year ago and greatly enjoyed Chris's sincere enthusiasm and dedication to his project. What started out as a good listener has now become a well-crafted delivery of a rather finite and specific depth of the topic without the superfluous details that could often derail a less intentional or casual listener. That was a a mouthful, wasn't it? Uh, Recent reviews by many listeners relate how they have been brought into a surprisingly fun and fascinating learning experience of history, what may have been perhaps a seemingly onerous project, before finding this podcast. All of which means that this podcast is doing a wonderful job of presenting history in a meaningful, fascinating and truly enjoyable manner. So, if you're interested or curious about what there is to learn about history, here's a great place to start. You can jump in on any episode that might catch your interest and pick up from there. It's that well written. Thanks so much, Chris, for your continued hard work and dedication to your art. Well, that's a very nice, very articulate, um, very articulately written uh, review. So, thank you very much, Tim X Ten. Uh, from the United States of America, has put, great podcast, Chris has made an interesting subject, more so, I have a half hour drive to work, with no cell and bad radio coverage, download at home, and it's a nice ride, with a friend who really knows his stuff, keep the voice of God, how Chris coalesces what he's researched, into each podcast, is remarkable, thanks, um, well thank you, thank you, like all, of, all of the compliments, that you lot, do throw in my direction, are quite humbling, and, and, and well received, and it, it almost, Almost sounds um, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? When I'm reading them out every week, I just uh, it's it's almost embarrassing, really. But I think I enjoy reading them out, and um, I think you deserve that as you've taken the time to write in. So um, I can humble myself enough to read them out, and and I do enjoy it. So uh, keep it coming. And likewise, if you've got any criticisms, like poor old Ken last week with. His his Chinese symbol really didn't enjoy that, made him jump about in his bed while he was trying to enjoy the podcast. Uh, Likewise, any criticism you want to make of the podcast, by all means do fire it over to me so that I can uh, can read it and I can uh, learn what you're all thinking. Anyway, that was a lot to cram in and uh, I'm going to go and give my voice a rest now. Until next week, we come back, we're going to do some more... Uh, Indian subcontinental history but we're going to move forward in time and find out when the steppe cultures started migrating southwards and invading an otherwise established uh, Indian civilization. Until next week um, don't forget to uh, rate and review the podcast and do of course uh, visit the Patreon site and become a History of the World podcast Illuminati member by donating to the podcast and its upkeep uh, such as uh, bruce hillman has done this week he's the latest member of the history of the world podcast illuminati so if you if you can do that that's great otherwise rate and review and until next week uh, we'll be back again for more history of the world podcast don't forget to be good come to the history of the world podcast.com and join all the other hot worlders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.